invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Acts as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 21, our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 16. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. past couple of weeks, we looked at Acts chapter 20 in Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders as he stopped in Miletus. He sent to the Ephesian elders. They came. He shared with them his heart. He shared with them a charge to guard the flock of God that he was not remiss in sharing with them the whole counsel of God, and he encouraged and admonished them to guard the church from both internal and external dangers. Then he prayed with them all. Verse 1 of chapter 21. The text reads, When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, and we were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. This way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us Panason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. 
Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. We're blessed, O God, at the hearing of it. We're blessed, O God, at the reading of it. And we pray that we would be blessed in the obedience of it. We pray, Father, that once again, open our eyes that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. When our country was facing an economic crisis a number of years ago, all the, eyes of the, all the eyes were on the head of our Federal Reserve. And at that time, some would say that the Federal Reserve chairman at that time held more power than the president because he controlled the monetary policy and the markets would rise and the markets would fall depending upon what he and the board decided. Well, several years ago in 2012, there was an enormous financial crisis in Europe. Some of you might recall reading in the news because the very survival of the structure of the euro currency, if not all of Europe there, was at stake. All the eyes were once again pointed to a single individual, the head of the European Central Bank. Financial markets and currencies had all plunged through the morning, and the only question on people's lips was, what will he say? His words would either cause an implosion or cause a reversion of the volatility that the markets in Europe would, had been experiencing. They would either face a collapse or they would face a reversal of what was happening. And on the morning of July 26, 2012, he stood up and he was asked what he would do to protect the euro, the currency that a number of countries in Europe used. And he answered in just three simple words. Three words. That's all he said. Well, I'm sure he said more, but all he said was this. He said, when asked what he would do to protect it, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That's what he would do to protect the euro. And as soon as he said that, the markets rallied and the immediate crisis at that time was over and the structure of the currency was viewed as secure and they have since pulled out of that crisis. Three simple words, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, a challenge, even for Christians to say that type of thing when it comes to living in obedience to God, when it comes to following God, when it comes and they're confronted with the crisis that the world has, which is a desperate need to hear the gospel of people hurting the question comes, what will we do? Will we do whatever it takes that people might hear about the Savior? Will we do what it takes if there is a need and God brings you into the awareness of that need to meet that need? Will it do to, we will do whatever it takes to follow God in obedience, whatever God might lead you to do? Will we do whatever it takes to obey God, no matter what the consequences might be? 
That type of determination, that type of attitude that the European Central Bank proposed was the type of determination that characterized Paul. Whatever it takes. Despite the Ephesian elders who had come in chapter 20 and pleaded with him not to go, despite the Christians entire where he lands, they pleaded with him not to step foot in Jerusalem, despite the fact that the prophet Agabus came and visibly showed him what would happen to him in Jerusalem, and despite even Luke himself, who writes the book of Acts, pleading with him not to go. Paul was determined to do whatever it takes to follow God. It wasn't out of a self-will. It wasn't out of a stubbornness. It wasn't out of pride that he went. He went, as it says in Acts 20, bound by the Spirit. He said, I am on my way to Jerusalem, verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He was determined to do whatever it took to follow God in obedience. He was determined and resolute in his pursuit, being led by the Spirit of God. And here we see him model for us that obedience despite the pressure. We see him model for us that courage despite the fact that there would be suffering. And so we take a look at that as he models that for the people. As he says in verse 1, he departed from them, he set sail, he went and found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, he went on board. Verse 3, they came in sight of Cyprus, they left it, they landed at Tyre. And at Tyre, verse 3, the ship was to unload the cargo, and he had a respite for a week. And when he was there, he went to find some believers, some Christians there. He was going to sit there for seven days, and these believers kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, you might recall that Paul's journey was to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't just because, oh, he loved suffering or he had a martyr's complex. It was because he had a huge offering. He had a huge offering for the Jews in Jerusalem because there were many who were impoverished in Jerusalem. You might recall back in the book of Acts what happened after Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Persecution came upon the church. And when persecution came and ostracism from their fellow Jews, many lost their jobs, they lost their livelihood, maybe they lost their property, they lost their businesses, some were imprisoned. Eventually, a number of them basically lost their source of income. So they didn't have money. On top of that, add to that, the, the Roman taxation, which would be a burden to any Jew... And then it tells us in Acts chapter 11 that within a decade, a famine swept through the land. And so the ranks of those who were poor, who were Christian Jews in Jerusalem, grew. And the church struggled as to how to address the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. So what did Paul do? Paul was out as a missionary to these Gentile churches. And so what did he do? He collected money. He collected an offering from the Gentile churches, including Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece. Macedonia included the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And he said, as I directed the churches in Galatia, 
meaning inclusive of the Galatian church as well. Now, some might object to what Paul did. Oh, no, that has to do with money. That has to do with physical things. He should be preaching and teaching and praying. He should not have collected money. He should not have anything to do with money. No, he was too involved. He shouldn't even collect it and carried the offering there. Some would believe that that would be the case, but that's not modeled by Paul nor the apostles. He said to the Roman church in Romans 15, 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints. And at the end of chapter 20, we see he was hurrying to bring this offering to Jerusalem because not only would it meet the physical needs of the poor in Jerusalem, but it would symbolically show the church in Jerusalem that there was solidarity with the Christians who are outside of Jerusalem, with the Gentile churches. Because you see, there was still this standoffishness. We're Jewish Christians. They're Gentile Christians. And so by bringing an offering from the Gentile churches to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, there would be a symbolic gesture of love, there would be a symbolic gesture that would break down the barriers of discrimination against those who were Gentiles that had been so ingrained in their Jewish mindset that Gentiles were unclean. The worst Jew was seen as better than the best Gentile. But in Christianity, when Christ came, those barriers were broken down and so by bringing an offering, it would show them that the church was one church, that it was a unified church made up of various people of different ethnic backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles together, part of one church. And so Paul was driven to go to Jerusalem. And when he had landed in Tyre, as we see the text tells us, they had a long layover. So what did he do? He looked up local believers. He spent a week there among the Christians. Now, the church at Tyre was likely made up of those who had dispersed when Stephen was martyred back in chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 11 as well. But some look at the verse 4, and it can be a bit confusing because it says, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, some see this as... The Spirit of God was using these believers to tell, tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So, as Paul goes to Jerusalem, some see this passage as Paul's disobedience, his rebellion, his stubbornness, that he proceeded to Jerusalem despite the Holy Spirit's warning. They surmise that maybe Paul was driven because of his desire to meet the needs of the poor or simply because he wanted the unity of the church and he ignored the Holy Spirit's direction through other believers. But I doubt that's the case. I doubt that's the case. Why? Because as we see in the pattern of the book of Acts, we see Paul's sensitivity and obedience, his full obedience to God. His sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 16, way back there in verses 6 and 7, it tells us that he says the Spirit prevented him from going on into the certain regions in Asia, and Paul didn't go. We see in Acts 16.9 that God appeared to him as a man of Macedonia, calling him to go and minister there, and he did. 
Paul states in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he states himself that he is bound by the Spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's driven by the Spirit of God himself, except that the Holy Spirit tells him that he's going to suffer bonds and affliction. And even after he arrives in Jerusalem, in chapter 23, verse 1, as he's speaking to the council in Jerusalem, he says intently to the council, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He didn't have any guilt or crisis of conscience having opposed the Holy Spirit, as some might believe. No, he had a clear conscience. He was driven by the Holy Spirit. So consistent with what we know of Paul, consistent with what he says about his own life, how he was driven by the Holy Spirit, that little preposition there, the word through, dia, can be rendered. They kept telling Paul by or through or because of the Spirit, comma, not to set foot in Jerusalem. And the most clear understanding that would be consistent with what the Scriptures already say about Paul it's not that the Holy Spirit somehow had two wills, but that the believers there, through the Spirit, had been told or informed what was going to happen to Paul. And as a result, they pleaded with him not to go, not to go to Jerusalem. Just like later on, Luke will say that he pleaded with him not to go. Just as the elders in chapter 20 pleaded with him not to go. They didn't want to see him suffer bondage and affliction and perhaps even die. The Spirit of God had informed those believers and they pleaded with him not to go. But Paul was resolute. He was determined despite the pressure of the peers, despite the danger that was involved. He was obedient to God, following the Spirit of God that led him to Jerusalem. He resisted the pressure from the outside, the temptation that it would be, the ease of life that he might have had he not gone to Jerusalem. And that can be tough, can't it? It can be tough to be obedient to God when some other choice might seem way easier, that the pressure is on by others and the temptation is to take the easy route. You can imagine somebody perhaps talking to Paul today. Paul, you're such an experienced missionary. Do you know what you can do instead of going to Jerusalem? You can start a school for missionaries. You can train them on how to evangelize. You can multiply missionaries and make missionaries and disciple them and send them off and think of what a wonderful ministry you might have. Or Paul, have you thought about going on the preaching circuit? Your reputation precedes you, especially among your enemies. And all of those, I can imagine, Paul, people will flock to you and God somehow uses you in the terriblest of places to convert many people. You can go and preach and hundreds, if not thousands, will come. Think of all the churches you've already planted and you can go and continue to do that if you just don't go to Jerusalem. Or, Paul, have you ever thought about writing you could write these doctrinal letters to every single church and leave behind a legacy of biblical truth for generations to come. Think of what you could do, Paul. No, all of those would have certainly been easier, but Paul would have been in disobedience to God's call on his life, bound by the Spirit, 
going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, he says. In his book entitled Pursuing Justice, Ken Wistma tells the following story about an African Christian leader who spent the last 15 years helping some of the most vulnerable people in the world, and he writes this quote, He was born and raised in what is one of the most war-torn regions in the globe today, Eastern Congo. His life is regularly threatened. He faces the seemingly impossible task of trying to restore villages decimated by rape, murder, and plunder. Some visiting executives from a large, well-known global relief organization once toured the region. They noticed what an effective job my friend was doing and offered him a position as the leader of their Congo operations. He quickly turned them down. On paper, it was the kind of offer you can't refuse. Higher pay, more security, great influence, a dream promotion for most Westerners, but he refused for a simple reason. And this is what he said, quote, God gave me the job I have. He's helped me build the relationships and the respect that I have. He has opened the door for me all these years and kept me safe on every trip out into the bush. I'm right where God has called me to be. So why would I go anywhere else? I don't just want to do good. I want to be where God wants me to be, unquote. How do you make decisions on what path you choose, path that you take in life? We ask ourselves honestly, are we open to going anywhere, anywhere, and doing anything that God wants you to do in your life? Are you, quote, right where God wants you to be? Or have you always chosen wherever the pay is higher, wherever the suffering is the least, wherever the climate and the comfort and the ease is the best, wherever it might provide for me the greatest pleasure, the greatest happiness for myself? Is that it? Are the decisions that you make in life based upon how good your life and how easy it could be, or are they based upon, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Whether it's to suffer, or whether it's to have ease, you can say, I am right where God has called me to be, so why would I go anywhere else? I don't just want to do good, I want to be where God wants me to be, unquote. Because that's the best place to be, isn't it? In the center of God's will. That is, obedience to God first. Despite the pressure, despite the temptation, despite the lucrative offers that the world might offer to you, obedience to God first. That was the resolve of the Apostle Paul. Secondly, he displayed courage and determination despite suffering. Courage and determination despite suffering. He went down from that area. The children, the wives came down with him. They prayed on the beach, and then he left. Verse 7, he finished the voyage from Tyre. They went on. After greeting the brethren, they went to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the evangelist, 
And this man had four virgin daughters. And then a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, it tells us. And this prophet Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, quote, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we, that includes the author whose name was Luke, when we had heard this, we as well as all the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? And then he says, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we felt silent, fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. Paul was willing to do whatever it takes. Be bound, he was willing to go. Die, he was willing to go. And his determination to go to Jerusalem paralleled that of Jesus as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. A similar plot by the Jews had been hatched for his death. He had been handed over to, he would be handed over to the Gentiles. He would have three predictions on the way about his suffering. He would have a steadfast resolve and a resignation to God's will. Now, some have looked at this passage when it says in verse 10 about the prophet Agabus who came down. They've looked at this passage and said, look, here's a prophet named Agabus. He has this prophecy about how Paul is going to be bound by this belt and be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And look, they say, they'll say Agabus got it wrong. He was a prophet. Sure, he was a prophet. He was a New Testament prophet that just prophesied poorly. He was a fallible prophet, as many purport today prophets are. And so they take a view that has never been taken by anyone in church history, and they say Agabus was a New Testament prophet who gave a wrong prophecy. Because why? They say that the Bible doesn't specifically say that he was bound. It doesn't specifically say that he was bound. But when we look at Acts chapter 21, when Paul later on is going to be arrested, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, Thomas Edgar writes, quote, There is no logical reason to assume that because the Romans bound Paul, verse 33, that somehow means that the Jews could not have bound him previously. Certainly, Paul did not go voluntarily along with the Jewish mob. He must have been bound in some sense. Since the Greek word deo, bind, can have several broader meanings, including the meaning to take captive, which the Jews obviously did to Paul. It is illogical to state that the Jews did not bind Paul, as Agabus said. However, there's no reason to assume that the Jews did not actually bind Paul with some physical restraints. And Nathan Busnitz also explains in detail as well that in Acts chapter 21, later on in this chapter, that it says the Jews laid hands on him, that they seized him, that they dragged him. In, in verse 31, they sought to kill him. They were beating him. And when the soldiers finally arrived, that's what they were doing. And Paul reiterates that the Jews had seized him, tried to kill him. And since Paul obviously didn't willingly go along with his Jewish mob, it's more than implied that they must have bound him 
somehow to lead him, to drag him away, drag him with them with some type of restraints. And so, though it may not explicitly say that, it is better then to assume that Agabus was a true prophet, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, and that it is implied that he must have been bound somehow. Otherwise, he probably put have put up a fight or tried to escape the beating given by the Jews. He was seized by the Jews, but Paul's determination continued on. Even though he was seized by the Jews, even though he was bound, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, how easy would that have been? How comfortable would that have been? Probably not very easy, probably not comfortable. That wasn't his standard of following God. The standard of following God was not, well, what will I get out of this? Or how much will it cost? It wasn't some type of self-centered, selfish, self-seeking, self-focused desire of his to go on some trip to Jerusalem. The focus of his was obedience to God, no matter what the cost. It wasn't about Paul's feelings It wasn't about Paul's happiness. It wasn't about Paul's comfort or his convenience. He was driven by the Spirit of God in obedience to God for the glory of God. Now, here in America, people often don't think like that. Herbert Hendon wrote some 40 years ago something that is still true in his book, Age of Sensation. He says, It is no accident that at the present time, the dominant trend in psychoanalysis are the rediscovery of narcissism, that is, the love of self. The society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relations to the question, quote, what am I getting out of it, unquote. R. Kent Hughes writes, we see similar trends in the church. Quote, God wants me to be happy. If I am not happy, I am not in his will. Quote, God does not want me to suffer pain. I am in pain. Therefore, I am not in God's will. What a fallacy, huh? Continues on. We must not make our understanding of God's guidance conditional on our own happiness or sense of completeness. We're not to preach because we enjoy it, because it is God's will. We're not to serve as elders or deacons because it is always fun, but because God wants us to. We should not work with a special education Sunday school class because it is fulfilling, though it is, but because God has led us to, unquote. How many times maybe your kids, when they're young, complain and say, church is no fun? Whoever said that we were to be at church because it's fun, What do you think? Do you say, well, I'll serve God when it's fun, when I have spare time, after my kids are grown. I'll pursue God more when I retire. I'll serve God because it makes me feel good. I won't serve God if it's too hot, too far to drive, or if it's no fun, or I don't get anything out of it. Do you think Paul went to Jerusalem because he's going to say to himself, I'm going to get a lot out of this. It's going to be a lot of fun for me, be super convenient. I'll meet a lot of friends. I'll do it because all the other apostles are going there. 
or I'll be a martyr and be famous. No. Oswald Chambers expresses the proper approach perfectly when he writes in his utmost for his highest, my utmost for his highest, quote, to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not, unquote. You make choices because it is an obedience to God, whether it makes me happy or not. Whether obedience to God makes me satisfied or not, it should produce within us a satisfaction simply because we are walking in the will of God. Not because it's more comfortable, convenient, or because we won't suffer very much. And I'll tell you, that's how many people choose short-term mission trips, huh? One of the top questions. What are the bathrooms like there? What kind of food do they eat? Is it too hot, too cold? Am I going to get a bed? I'll suffer too much there. It's not easy. I'm not going. Friend, we do things because it is the will of God, the desire of God. Whether or not we suffer, live or die to Paul, that was his desire to leave to God. There's an old song that we love to sing. I've said it many times. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Do you know what the cross symbolizes? When people wear a cross as a piece of jewelry around their neck, do they realize what it's saying when the world is behind you and the cross is before you? The cross is not a symbol of ease and Comfort in a house with a white picket fence. Luke 9.23, when Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, self-denial, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you know what the symbol of the cross was? In New Testament times, it was a symbol of shame, a symbol of embarrassment, a symbol of rejection, a symbol of persecution, and even martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. The symbol of the cross was a symbol of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. Did you ever wear a symbol of execution? A necklace with a guillotine there. Symbol of torture. That's what it was for Rome. A symbol of death for anyone who would raise their fist up against Rome in rebellion. It was a symbol of suffering. Not long before Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi there, a hundred men had been crucified right in that area. And a century earlier, a hundred years before that, 800 rebels had been crucified at Jerusalem. And after the revolt, after the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by Rome. And it was not an uncommon thing. We think that perhaps Jesus was there and crucifixion was rare with two thieves next to him on the cross. It was not. Under Roman authority during the lifetime of Christ, it's estimated some 30,000 people were crucified. Do you know what they would do? They would crucify them and they would put them on the cross 
lining the roads so that when you would go, you would see somebody half-conscious, almost naked, hanging, bleeding, torturous on the cross, a symbol of death. Imagine if you drove home today, and every three blocks, you and your children would see somebody hanging, bleeding on a cross, being picked apart by the birds, trying to breathe by pushing themselves up. So when the disciples heard Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me, they knew what it meant. They knew what it meant. It meant, you want to follow me? You must be willing to give up your life. You want to be a Christian? You must be willing to die for my sake. You want to be a believer in Christ? Then you must do what the world would consider to be a fool. The late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said, quote, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this, quote, have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Unquote. Be willing to say, as Paul probably would have sung if he knew the song, Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. He said, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Many, many years ago at Urbana, a large mission conference focused on collegiates back in 1967, there was a student named Libby who attended there with her boyfriend, Tom. In the evening, during that final commitment evening, they submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus. And for 30 years, Tom and Libby Little, they served in Afghanistan. And they provided vision care to the people of Kabul through many endless wars and conflict over the decades they did, being the hands that would testify of Christ's love being the witness for Christ. But just seven years ago, in August 2010, Todd had conducted a two-week medical camp in a remote valley of northwestern Afghanistan, and he and his medical team were ambushed. They were killed. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Libby received it on his behalf. And she said, quote, although Tom was killed in 2010, he had already surrendered his life to God's good purposes way back in 1967. And for decades he served, obedient to Christ, despite the pressure, perhaps from others, to flee when there was war in Afghanistan. There still is. The courage to follow God and serve despite the suffering. 
perhaps even the surrender to be able to say I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Afghanistan for the name of the Lord Jesus. The question for you and I is, is that our resolve? Is that our resolve to say, I am willing to do, quote, whatever it takes to follow in obedience to God, whether bound, whether to suffer, or even die for the sake of Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, Father, that we might realize, as your word has declared, that we were saved, not that we might live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. That, Father, we might be able to say that we are willing to go wherever you should call us to. Not because it's easier, not because there's no suffering, not because it is more lucrative, but because we desire to obey you. And so, God, may we live a life of full surrender, knowing, O oh God, that you desire what is best for us, and may we have that resolve to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.